As I said, uh, just for some of new, new people here, we're, we're at a Bible study, but we're not, uh, we're, we're going to be talking about the Bible, but we're doing a lot of history. I'm doing a short little series here that um, is going through the history to help us understand a little bit of why we believe what we believe in the Bible and um, some of the, the dangers that have come uh, throughout history that keep us from seeing the Bible as we should see the Bible sometimes too. And so last week we, or last time I talked, we, we basically had brought history up to what was called the Bar Kokhba Rebellion of 131 AD. It was worse than the 70 AD falling of the temple. And in 131, the Romans had been so sick that they spread the Jews all throughout and they were not allowed to come back to Jerusalem until 1948. And so for all of that time, they have been without being able to be back at Jerusalem. So um, this week, we are going to see that the disciples themselves became the atonement after Christ came. In a sense that, when I say disciples, let me rephrase this. People themselves at this point became the atonement when there could be no atonement because the temple had been taken away. Now, I disagree with that. We become the temple, but what I'm saying is those that did not accept Jesus, that did not accept the atonement that Jesus made on that cross, had to come up with some other way that they could be atoned for. And they themselves became the atonement. I'll explain that as we go. Prior to this, the Sanhedrin, which we read about in the Bible, the Sanhedrin was like the supreme court of the nation at that time. And after 131, the Sanhedrin is dispersed. It's taken away. They're going to make some kind of more informal Sanhedrin. But what ends up happening is... There has to be a new ruling party. And that new ruling party is going to become what we know today as Rabbinic Judaism. What we know today as Rabbinic Judaism is not even what was there at Jesus' day. Now, there were problems even at Jesus' day. But remember, it kind of started falling apart from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. There was a system set up. And so today, when people talk about Jews... I think sometimes rabbinic Judaism gets mixed up with biblical Judaism. And there is a huge, I mean, night and day difference between the two. The Bible laid out what a government was supposed to look like in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Basically, there was a king, and that king was to be under the law. But outside of Israel, the kings were above the law. They made the law. But God set up a system where he says, I'll give you the law, and then you are under that law. And then he had people who would enforce that law, the priests and so on. Well, what's going to happen under rabbinic Judaism is they're going to abolish those branches of government, you might say. And so, you know, whereas God was like the king before, uh, well, really God, the king, and the priests you had, God giving the law, Now, rabbinic Judaism is going to replace all of them, and they become all three. Okay? 
So a new era is about to begin. And those that were called the Messianics or the way that followed Jesus, the Messiah, they found atonement in Jesus. However, those that did not, as I said, had to find it in some other way. And it's a very scary thing because there could be absolutely no assurance of salvation. When you became the atonement, there is no assurance. And I'll talk about that here later. But um, it's interesting today when we look at a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue. You go to Omaha and you go to a Jewish synagogue. You could be a Buddhist. You could be an atheist. You could be a Hindu. You could be anybody and the doors are open for you to come in. But if you believe in Jesus as the Messiah, those doors are closed. The Judaism of today is literally open to everything and anything except Jesus. And that is so sad. But that is the reality. And I think you need to understand that. There are people who get into the Messianic movement and they think that Judaism is something that they need to understand. And so what they do is they'll go to these Jewish synagogues hoping to learn. Well, I think it's very important you understand what these synagogues believe and what they are teaching today. Because it is not anything about messianic. It is not anything to deal with Christianity. It is actually quite the opposite. As a matter of fact, one of the most famous rabbis of all time is called Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai, or Zaki. And he is dead now, but on his deathbed... Again, this is one of the greatest rabbis of all time. He was crying, and one of his disciples came up and asked him, he says, what are you crying about? And he says, I see two, two doors, one open to heaven, one open to, to hell, basically, and I don't know which one I'm going through. That's the kind of assurance the greatest rabbi of all time, the Jews would say, had based on atonement by themselves, by man being atonement. That's a sad existence. I personally believe that Christianity is not Christian, it is Jewish. And rabbinic Judaism is not Judaism. It is paganism. Outright paganism. And as we go, I'll explain of some of what that means. But anyway, to understand this, again, we've been going through history. For those of you who haven't been here, we're up to 131 A.D., Prior to this, just a real fast summary, Ezra and Nehemiah, the law of God was being used, the kings were under it, they were teaching it, everything was good, but it set up a system and the Greek philosophy began to overtake. And so the Greek philosophy was there where it was over like logic and reason over the word of God. And then we ended up getting into the time of Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they had these different beliefs. But you need to understand that the Pharisees and Sadducees were more of a political party than they were a religious party at that time. It was kind of under a guise of religion, but it was more politics than true religion. This is one reason why Jesus was constantly bucking the system. They had so many man-made rules they, they weren't just following God's rules. They were twisting God's rules into man's rules. So, as I said before, we have to be careful not to confuse Torah and Tanakh. Torah is simply 
the five books of the first five books of the Bible, or sometimes we call it the Pentateuch. All right, the Tanakh is literally the Bible, the Old Testament Bible. Okay, the Torah, T, Nevi'im and Ketuvim, which is the prophets and the the writings. And so the Tanakh makes up really the Old Testament. So just uh, know that. But the other thing I want you to understand is the key here is that Greek influence was growing more and more and more. And because of that Greek influence, there is going to be a system that is developed that is very hard to deal with today. Remember I said the Sadducees were gone because the temple had been taken away and primarily they were the priests. No temple, no priests. The Essenes, by default, had been going away because... You know, they, they didn't believe in reproduction. They were all focused on eschatology and basically not living to spread the word, but to hide out. They were the Amish of the day. And we see that the, the Pharisees were the ones that were kind of left. And they are the ones that are going to gain control of the spiritual atmosphere of the day. One of the things that a lot of people don't understand, though, is to be a part of the Sanhedrin meant that you had to be one of the most knowledgeable people. When we started this series, I told you that Greek, uh, the Jews believed that education is very important. And I said that I would answer these questions as we went. Today you're going to learn why they see education as being so important. You see, they believe Rambam, a very famous uh, Jewish rabbi, teaches that Moses was one of the greatest philosophers. He was the greatest philosopher. Now that might sound like a compliment, but it's not at least if we see truth, because Moses was not a philosopher. He was a conduit to God's word coming out. God is not a philosopher. It's not a philosophy. It is truth. And so because of this Greek influence that had crept in, for the Sanhedrin, you had to be able to debate and argue and understand all things, whether it be worldly or unworldly. You knew a little bit about everything. And that's what you had to be. Education was vital if you were going to be a member of the Sanhedrin. Now again, I'm not saying that education is bad, but when that's our, our focus, as you're going to see as we go through this, then there is a problem. I mentioned to you uh, a famous Jewish saying at weddings. You'll hear it all the time. Mazel tov, right? Mazel tov. You know what that means? We talked about it, I think, a couple of years ago. Mazel is the Hebrew word for star. Tov or tov is the word good. Good star. Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, is rooted in paganism, astrology, and Greek thinking. The Greeks were the ones that, where did they get all, all their Greek gods? The stars. Right? They worshiped the heavens, they had Zeus, they had all, you know, Hermes and all of these things that we get from the stars. And so Mazel Tov is not a biblical saying. That is absolute Judaism, culture, and paganism. Good star, good fortune. And again, that came from Jewish, or uh, not Jewish, Greek uh, philosophy. So what is going to happen here? When the temple is gone, you have no more Sanhedrin, the Pharisees are going to basically kind of take over it. This Bar Kokhba revolt 
created a separation in the Eastern and the Western Jewish societies. Jerusalem became a Greek city. The leading survivors from this big rebellion then moved towards Babylon. Remember when we went through Revelation, come out of her, my people, speaking of Babylon. It was the old Persian kingdom as well. So there the Jews were treated very well, unlike the Romans that were, you know, treating those in Jerusalem, kicking them out and so on. And so there were many little Jewish communities that began to form after this Bar Kokhba, Bar Kokhba revolt in different areas. And in the east there, in the Babylonian Persian area, the ruler was called the Exilarch. And it was more of an informal Sanhedrin to replace what used to be the formal Sanhedrin. And in order to be part of that, you had to be from the house of David. And they focused on the oral records that is going to last into the 11th century. Um, I'll talk about that oral record later. But for now, since the Romans in the West had you know, kicked the Jews out, um, things were very different there in that part of the world. The Exilarch became a type of lord over all these developing communities then in the East. Now, it is when this happened and they started developing these communities that the yeshiva is beginning to form. The synagogue is now out and yeshivas become the center. What is a yeshiva? It simply means like sit, um, a, a sitting, a place to, to learn. You could equate it to a Bible school. And so today in Jerusalem, there are all kinds of yeshivas. And I'll talk about it later, but tax, the tax, tax dollars in Israel pay for these yeshivas and the people to go learn. Billions, literally billions of dollars every year. It's, it's incredible. So in the West, though, the head of the Sanhedrin became known uh, as the Nasi, also had to be from the house of David. And it's going to last until the latter part of the 5th century. Um, that's pretty much all I'm going to tell you about that for now. But what they're going to do is they develop what is called the Mishnah. Now, the Nasi, the leader in the West, around 200 AD, history tells us, was a guy named Judah HaNasi, Judah the ruler, the prince, the, the, the Nasi. And what he did is he wrote down the rulings of all these rabbis that were talking about things and arguing, all these Greek-trained philosophical men. And all of these rulings of the rabbis become known as the Mishnah. Most of the Mishnah was made between 0 and 200 A.D., Okay. Now, I know this is just some facts that I'm giving you for now, but I, you'll understand. The Mishnah was divided up into six orders, which you can see here. I'm not going to go through all of them to save time. And there are 13 different ways to determine what truth is in an argument. And an argument is really what is going to be called a tractate. And they say it comes from Moses, this, these 13 ways of determining what truth is, but even modern scholars today say that it came from the Greek philosophy, these 13 ways to determine truth, philosophy. And so here is a picture of the Mishnah. 
Doesn't mean anything to you, but there it is. I'll show you some of that here in a minute. So the Mishnah, you added to that what was called the Gemara. And you put those two together and you have the Talmud. Okay? The Mishnah were these rulings. Okay? And they were called tractates, these little arguments. And so there are all these different tractates for all those different categories. Rulings on the Sabbath. Rulings on the festivals. Rulings on a clean or an unclean oven. Ruling upon ruling. Kind of like the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. Now, the problem was, is the, the rule was more about uniformity than faith. Really not even about truth as much as uniformity throughout the body. Now you have the Jews spread out all over. You don't have a, a common community. And so they needed these things to develop unity throughout the body. So the Mishnah, the, all these rulings are debated for about 300 years, from 200 to 500 A.D. And in 500 A.D., they write down all these rulings, this debate about the rulings, and that is the Gemara. Okay? So, the Mishnah is debated for 300 years, and that debate is the Gemara. So, go ahead. I know they, they read and write right to left. Does that book actually open backwards? Yeah, yeah. That's how all the Hebrew books will be. It opens backwards, too. So, the Talmud, which this is only one volume of several, by the way, is what is the Bible for uh, rabbinic Judaism today. All right? Now, we don't follow this. I, let me stress that. We do not follow this. We do not follow rabbinic Judaism. We would follow what would techni technically be called biblical Judaism. That's what Jesus was, a biblical Jew. Right? Many in the church today confuse this, this with what was going on in Jesus' day. This wasn't even around in Jesus' day. 500 AD, it's put together, the Gemara, okay? the Mishnah in the first 200 years after Christ. So what it looks like on the inside, and you can, you can come and look at this later. This one though that I have, you have Hebrew and English. But just to lay it out so that, you know, I'm not going to make much time on this, but just as you can see, here is your ruling. Here is then the Mishnah. Okay, the ruling on it. And then what you're going to see is that there's all kinds of, it's like you can almost divide it up into different uh, sections there. I'll show you what those sections are in a minute. Um, the Mishnah was written in Hebrew. The Gemara was written, written in, or I'm sorry, the Mishnah, yeah, in Hebrew, and the Gemara in Aramaic. And again, why would that be? Because after 131 AD, where did they go? Babylon and Persia. So they started reading and writing in the Babylonian and Persian uh, culture, you would say. And so it is extremely lengthy, but this is what that looks like. Here's your Mishnah. Okay, then you have the Gemara, again, from Babylon, 500 AD, it was written down. The Gemara, you can always tell there's like a, 
a, a, a gamel and a mem, like a G and an M is what that is right there. And so there's the Mishnah. Here's then your argument about the Mishnah called the Gemara. Would that be like a, uh, a commentary then? It's not quite a commentary. It's literally an argument. People going back and forth. This guy says this, this guy says that. So more like the Supreme Court makes a ruling, you have an assenting opinion and a dissenting opinion. Yes. That are filed with the court. Case. Yes. And then you have over on the right would be Rashi, a very highly respected rabbi, what Rashi says about it all. And then you're going to have what other, the sophists and, and other people say about it. And so that is how the entire Talmud is laid out. Mishnah, Gemara, Rashi, Sophists, and others talking about it. I'll so, bet you just would can't wait to read something like that, right? So, but in, but in 500 AD, we just had the Mishnah and the Gemara, right? Up to 200 AD, we only had the Mishnah. Then from 200 to 500 AD, they, they debated the Mishnah and wrote it down, and then that's when you got the Gemara. And so at 500 AD, we officially get the Talmud. You think that has anything to do with you know the Christians kind of canonizing their first version of the Bible? And um, probably has something to do with it, but even prior to that, it had everything to do ultimately, I believe, with trying to hide the Messiah from the people. A, a big part of it was for that. Why this structure? I don't know why they did it that way. I'm not sure. So. Um, these additional comments that you have beyond Rashi, Rashi and whatnot is basically because, and by the way, modern Talmuds, you even have more because there are new things that come up. Stem cell research, what do you do? So people will have to apply these things to stem cell research and, and you get it just gets so convoluted and there are literally libraries of additional commentaries on this. But I don't need to spend much time on there. I just want you to recognize what it is and understand the background of it. What's important about Talmudic Judaism isn't the Mishnah or the ruling, but it's the reasoning behind the ruling according to a Jew. And that is extremely important to understand their thinking. You may say, like I said here, who cares? Well, the rabbis believe that God has given them a divine responsibility to maintain uniformity, to keep everybody together, the body together. And so the reasoning for one rule has to be able to be applied to every other rule that's going to come along. You go and you get an observant Jew who is a scientist that's looking at stem cell research. How is he going to decide, is this murder or is it not murder? In order to get the answer to that question, he is not going to go to the Bible. He's not going to go to the Pentateuch or the uh, Torah or the Tanakh. He's not going to any of those. What he is going to do is he's going to go to a rabbi in modern Talmud to understand their reasoning and then apply the reasoning to stem cell research. Okay? But the Bible is not what he is going to go for, look for the answer for. Whatever the decision is then, by that rabbi though, it's going to be binding for the whole community. Okay? In other words, a pope. He's a little pope. I was thinking a king. Well, you could look at it that way too. But 
the point is, is it's becoming much more, or it became more philosophical, not truth, not biblical. Truth wasn't truth. Truth is actually relative, according to a Jew today. In fact, truth is not fixed. It can change with every situation. It can change with time and culture. This is also, you might remember, who was the Jew that not long ago was uh, conservative? Everybody was up in an uproar. Dennis Prager, when he was asked about pornography. Now, we would look at that and we would say, Dennis, how can you, I mean, even look at your Old Testament. You should be able to know pornography is wrong. But you see, that's not how they think. You see, they're applying reason, Greek philosophy, from other things and applying it to the situation of pornography. And so truth is relative to a rabbinic Jew today. All right? Um, it's kind of similar to Catholicism. It doesn't matter what the Bible says. I have talked to many Catholics where I would try and reason with them using Scripture. And they will just take it and ignore everything I've said about the Scripture. And they will quote something that one of their church historians has said or what their Catholic doctrine would say. doesn't matter if I can show a verse that exactly says the opposite of it. The Bible's not the authority. Something else is. Okay? And that is what we see happening in Talmudic Judaism. The rabbi is not a pastor. He's a scholar. And one of the reasons that education is valued among the Jew is because the rabbi, in their view, is as close as you can get to God. And therefore, to be a good rabbi, you have to be educated. Not much has changed from the time of the Sanhedrin. You see, it wasn't really about God's word as much as it was about politics and power. For a Jew today, they study if you ask them, if you go to a yeshiva in, in Israel, any one of them, and I guarantee you, if you ask them this question, why do you study? Their answer will be, for the sake of study. They have a, a, a Hebrew word for it. It's Torah lishma. For the sake of study, for the sake of Torah. Why do you study? For the sake of doing it. Um, that's interesting because... I think that sometimes Christians can get that same attitude. We study. Why do, you, why do you read the Bible? Well, I'm supposed to. So you're doing it for the sake of doing it, for the sake of the discipline. We'll come back to that. But when they say they study Torah, Torah Lishma, Torah technically is the five books of the Bible. The law. And when you ask them why you do that, they're hearing something different. Now we're, they're kind of like Mormons. Because when I say that, do you believe that you're going to get to heaven? A Mormon will say yes. But do you know that their definition of heaven is different than my definition of heaven? To a Jew today, the definition of Torah is different than your definition of Torah. To them, it is more about oral Torah. 
We'll talk about the oral Torah coming up, but for now I just want you to understand that, that that's what they see it. It's all about really oral, the, the message that's been passed on through verb, verbal uh, means, not written means. Okay? So, it kind of reminds me of uh, 2 Timothy 3.7. I didn't put it up here, but 2 Timothy says that they will be ever learning, but never coming to the knowledge of truth. Again, going back to what I said, it kind of reminds me of Christians today. Many in the church, I think, do this too. That we're ever learning, but we're never coming to the knowledge of the truth. What is truth? Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And i got to be honest that the last month or more, this is something that has been weighing on my heart greatly as I have been examining, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more, but examining what's going on in our society and our world. There are so many distractions about knowledge that people are getting caught up with that I feel that they are losing sight of truth. Because we're so distracted, ever learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of Jesus. In Messianic Jewish teachings today, this isn't the case. Knowledge isn't the important thing. Jesus is the important thing. And that is one reason that they are often looked down upon by other Jews. Okay, besides, you know, just Jesus himself being so offensive to them. Real quick, I, just to show you the importance of education to Jews, do you know that since the establishments of the Pulitzer Prize in 1918, the Jews have won 53% of them? That's of the nonfiction, 14% in the fiction, but... In sports, from 1901 to 2007, they have won 401 medals in the Olympic Games. And you may say, well, that's, you know, 401 medals, no big deal. But if you look at the population of Israel and the population of other countries, that is seven times more based on the proportion of the population. Here's just a little bit showing you Nobel Prizes. How much of the Jews? 22 percent of all Nobel Prizes have gone to Jews, even though they are less than 0.2% of the world's population, they have 22% of the Nobel Prizes. Putting in that into perspective, that is 11,250% above average. just want to point out that the largest category is economics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So education is very important, and the reason that is, is because this is what they see as how you are close to God. Study for the sake of study. It is God's will that you study. It isn't really God's will that you get to know Him, it's that you study. You study to study, not study to do. And there's a difference between that. So I am not going to read this. But to give you one example of a Talmudic passage where there was a Mishnah and then the Gemara. The Mishnah was a ruling over an oven. Basically, they were arguing whether this oven was clean or not once this new oven was built. 
and there are two rabbis that are going to go back and forth in the Gemara, this argument, deciding whether it's clean or unclean. Rabbi Eliezer is the one who has the oven and he's arguing that it is clean. And so what he does, and this is, by the way, this is true, true story. Uh, it's recorded, and these are people who are well known throughout history. All right, so this isn't like a make-believe fairy tale. This is what they consider as true history. And it's crazy because what happens is these two are arguing, and Eliezer is arguing basically for God. And the rest are saying, no, you're wrong. And he says, well, if I'm right, I want this tree to remove itself, and then it'll be proof that I'm right. Lo and behold, according to the history of the Talmud, and they believe this is true history, that tree was uprooted and moved 100 yards away. I'm not saying, I'm just saying that's what they believe. Well, then he's, they say, no, that doesn't matter. And then he says, well, if the stream reverses its course, and sure enough, the stream reverses its course. And then he says, if the walls that we're in will, will fall in, then you know that shows that I'm right. And sure enough, the walls lean in, but they don't fall all the way down. So the other rabbi argues if this really was of God and if it was true, they would have fallen in and crushed us, but they didn't, so you're still wrong. Okay? This is a long, boring thing to read, but this is the summary of it. It, it continues where then there is what's called a bod kol, or a voice from God, a voice from heaven. And this voice from heaven comes and basically says, Eliezer is right. Now you would think that if you saw all these miracles taking place and a voice from heaven come down, you'd say, okay, okay, I better listen. But nope, the other rabbis refused to listen to their voice, uh, the voice that came from heaven, and they quote scripture in Exodus saying, majority rules, turn after the majority. In other words, what they're claiming is that the oral Torah that God gave Moses saying, turn after the majority, proves Eliezer wrong because you're just one guy and the majority of the people are saying that you're wrong. So they use scripture in that case. <laughs> they use scripture in that case, but wait. <laughs> this sounds like talking to a modern Christian about following the In some ways, yes. Yes. Okay, not even a voice from heaven could prove Eliezer right. In essence, what they were saying is heaven no longer has a voice. We make the rules. Remember I said they abolished the three forms of government. You no longer have a priest. You no longer have somebody who tells you what the law... You now have just this one system. And they are the rule. So Rabbi Eliezer then, it kind of has a funny ending. He's telling everyone that God is trying to get their attention. God is trying to speak to you. And instead of listening, they decide, all right, we need to excommunicate Eliezer. So they send another rabbi, a very highly respected rabbi named Rabbi Akiva. Now Rabbi Akiva, by the way, was the one that proclaimed Bar Kokhba the Messiah and was wrong and then became, you know, the, the deception. So Rabbi Akiva, again history, goes to Eliezer to excommunicate him. And they have to send somebody that's of equal uh, merit 
to excommunicate. That's just kind of part of their rules. Well, the reason that they have to excommunicate him is you're bringing division among the body. And because of the division, this is not good, and you have to go. You're not following the majority. So, you might remember Gamliel as the story continues. Gamliel is uh, the Nasi, or the ruler at that time of the Sanhedrin, the grandson of the Gamliel Paul knew. Okay, so this is kind of giving you a timing and history there. Anyway, since Gamliel is the one he had treated Eliezer poorly, Gamliel went on a ship ride, and the ship basically sinks, and he is spared. He's not killed, but almost. So Gamliel argues with God as he's floating out in the water that, listen, I had to excommunicate Eliezer because he was bringing division. So what I did was for a good reason. And so in Gamliel's eyes, God spares him, says, okay, it's all right. Well, Eliezer gets home. Eliezer just happened to be married to uh, his wife was basically the sister of Gamliel. Well, his sister knows that all of this has been going on and there's divisiveness among the family, so he does not allow her to fall on his knees, meaning pray. Because she knows that if he falls on his knees to pray, then something bad might happen to her brother. Well, one day she slips up and he, she comes in and he has been found on his knees praying. And what happens? Gamaliel dies. Okay? That is the Talmud. <laughs> All right? Literally, this is just one of thousands of stories in the Talmud. Okay? Yeah. Now imagine reading this, okay, rather than me telling you the story. Anyway, the whole point of me even bringing this up is this, that majority rules. Okay, no matter what, not even a voice from heaven can change what, not even the scriptures themselves can change. Can you see why it's so hard to witness to a Jew? It's the same reason it's so hard to witness to many Catholics that are, you know, into Catholicism. Because there is a system that is set up that is almost impossible to break through. How could God intervene and speak to them, even if he wanted to, unless they're broken in some way? Because even this idea of majority rules twists the scriptures completely. They quote it from Exodus 23, 2-3. So let's read this verse. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. And do not show favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. Yeah, huh? It actually says the opposite of majority rules. But they have twisted this. The rabbis have twisted this to the point of what I'm saying. It doesn't even matter what Scripture says. This is why when you go and show them Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, that's not Jesus. As plain and logical and clear as that is Jesus, they cannot hear it. So it's very sad. 
What's that? Moses was just a philosopher. Moses was just a philosopher, yeah. So again, basically saying flesh and blood is where truth is found. By man is where truth is found. And I'm not going to go through this here, but bottom line is, if miracles go against the ruling of the majority, even the miracles are wrong. That's how they reason that Eliezer was a false prophet. In essence, what it did is it kicked God and the Holy Spirit out of faith. And I think that's happened in the church as well. Not only from our church fathers in many cases, okay? I'm not saying that our church fathers didn't have some good things, but I'm telling you, I see people following church fathers more than God today in many denominations. I believe that even the Nicene Creed, of which I agree with the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Council kicked the Holy Spirit out of the church saying, you know what? God can't speak to you through his word anymore. Now, our church doctrines, that's where we get truth. Satan uses that same system to get us trapped so that we can't hear. That not even a bod coal or a voice from heaven can, you know, teach us something. Now... If you read anything from Jewish literature today, you might even see that they don't spell the word God. It'll be G-D. Yahweh. They can't say the word Yahweh. And Exodus 3.16, God told Moses, he says, Tell Israel that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent you, and this is my name forever. They twist that scripture and say that you're not supposed to use the name forever. So you ever wonder why they don't say the word Yahweh, why they don't say the word God? It's because of rabbinic Judaism twisting the scriptures. It has nothing to do with holiness, righteousness, or truth. That's why they do it. But I see Christians who get caught up in the messianic aspect who are just like, well, you know, we're not even going to say the name of God anymore either. And they don't even know why they're doing it. They're doing it simply because, well, it's Jewish. Well, you better know what Jewish means. And would you say that line of thinking pretty well in effect in Jesus' day? No. Not yet. With, with speaking the name of Yahweh. Yep, not yet. Okay. No, that all is going to be after Christ that these things started happening. That Again, Pharisees were messed up in their own way, but it got worse afterwards. Um, like I said, there's no spirit of God. That data, you know, the Holy Spirit doesn't speak to us. He doesn't teach us. He doesn't do anything like that. There's no supernatural. So if a Christian prays for you, if you're a Jew, a Christian prays for you, and you're healed, a Jew considers that a curse. Yeah. Okay, that's supernatural. Anything supernatural is pagan. The authority of the prophets with this system went to the rabbis. Again, what the word says doesn't matter. What matters is what the rabbi says. So the rabbis have become the new prophets. They voided free form prayer. Today, what do we do? We go and we pray. Lord, you know, help, help me with this. Lord, you know, um, bring this person to faith. Bring this person to repentance, whatever. Free form prayer, gone. This is why you have a prayer for everything in modern Talmudic Judaism. There is a prayer before you eat. There is a prayer before you go to the bathroom, literally. A prayer before you wash your hands. A prayer before you get out of bed. A prayer before you go to bed. There is a prayer for 
everything in this way. Everybody's saying the same prayer. Freeform prayer is no longer there in Talmudic Judaism. Catholics do do that. Frankly, I grew up in some of that. Now, I'm not saying it's all bad, but I remember time after time after time, come Lord Jesus, be our guest. Let these gifts to us be blessed. Amen. We say the same prayer over and over to become... You know, it, there's no free form. There's no really giving thanks. It's just, well, I did that, check, now I can eat. Okay? Now, again, if your heart is saying those things, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay? But this is the system that has been developed. And yes, we can see Christianity, little parts of that, uh, in it. Um, they say a prayer from a man is never heard unless it's from the synagogue. Okay, and now you can do these other prayers, you know, for going to the bathroom and whatnot, but those are just these ritual things. So no more prophecy except for through the rabbi. The Bible is not as authoritative as the Talmud. Now, when I say Talmud again, keep in mind this. What is the Talmud? Is it the Tanakh? No. It is rulings and then arguments about the rulings and then commentary about those arguments. Yeah. Yeah. It was expensive. Yeah. I, I think for one, as for people to see it, number two, I think there are some values that you can see how they think in the history sometimes are important because of what they saw. So you would never refer to that for any kind of... I would, just as I would refer to, you know, Josephus or something in history. I think there are some histories where they saw the Messiah in the Old Testament that is pretty incredible. As they talk about it in their discussions, um, one of these times we'll maybe go through that. I mean, when you go through the book of Numbers, we read that as Christians and we go, oh, boring. But they saw the Messiah everywhere in that. And that would be in that? That would be in certain volumes of the Talmud. Yep. But you are gleaning little bits out of a lot of garbage. A lot of garbage. Well, I think the difference is this. Some cases they're quoting people that were before. And so what you're seeing is history that where they were much closer to it than what we were. But um, you, you can tell. You can tell when it's good and when it's not. But I would never recommend everybody go buy a Talmud. Matter of fact, I'd recommend you don't. Okay? There's free versions. There are. There are free versions. They're searchable too. But... The reason I think that this is so important is because I do see so many people having a love affair with Judaism and they have no idea what it is. That it's Talmudic Judaism, not Biblical Judaism. Biblical Judaism is Jesus. Uh, Judaism. Okay. So, in this vein, talk about, if you want... When Paul says that the Jews are the keepers of the oracles of God, and how do you navigate that truth against what Judaism is? Romans says this. He says, what value is there in being a Jew? He says, much in every way, for they have been entrusted with the very words of God. We have to keep in mind that is before any of this happened. And the Jews did preserve God's word. 
so perfectly that that's why we can see that the Dead Sea Scrolls today match up to scriptures really perfectly. Okay? And so I think it's different because this, that was biblical Judaism that Paul was talking about. And even with that, God uses donkeys for his purpose. Because he uses me, he uses you, he uses anybody. And so it doesn't matter. The fact is that was God's choice to make them preserve it, even when they, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, had gone astray. So that's how I would answer that so question. How does Ron over there be in I'll cover that later. Okay. Yeah. Um, he does not live as Talmudic Judaism. Yeah. Matthew 16 says this, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, literally flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay, we see Jesus using terms that were very familiar to the Pharisees even before this. Being, they believed that they could bind and loose. Those are very you know, Jewish terms, the language of the Pharisees, because they would bind the community by their halakha or their, their rulings. Okay? But notice that Jesus is saying truth comes from where? Yeshua. Jesus, not through reason and logic. Okay, you could reason and logic Jesus away. But he says truth comes from heaven. And in essence, what I'm saying is it doesn't come from Greek philosophy of logic and reason. Mars Hill. It's not going to come from Mars Hill. It's not going to come. This is why we see so many of these learned people today who do not believe in God because they only believe in the empirical sciences. Yet, that's what they love to say and preach and teach, but yet they can't tell me how much love weighs. Right? They'll accept things that are not empirically proven. There are certain things that you cannot logic and reason into existence or understanding. Faith is one of those things. It is not by logic and reason that we believe that God formed this world by his word, but by faith we believe God formed this world by his word, Hebrews 11 tells us. Faith is, is a huge issue, and they got rid of it. So, like I said, this is the problem with Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, and so on. You know... I think that it is possible, I don't know for sure, but it's possible God was truly trying to speak through Eliezer, trying to speak to these people, and they wouldn't listen. I don't know. But when Paul is writing the scriptures, this system wasn't quite fully in effect yet. It's only gotten worse as that Greek philosophy got its talons deep in Judaism. And so... It's something just to kind of think about. Um, our Bible tells us very clearly that in end times there will be signs and wonders to deceive even the elect if that were possible. Will they listen by even signs and wonders? Not without this system breaking somehow. If you ask a Jewish person, are you saved? 
they'll look at you like, what? What do you mean? Saved from what? They don't understand the concept of salvation. You can tell them sin, but they don't understand what sin is. I'm a Jew. I'm chosen. Sin has nothing to do with it to a Jew today. It has everything to do with, are you a Jew? Catholicism has nothing to do with faith anymore. It happens, are you part of the church? There are people that I would meet out evangelizing on on the streets all the time. A relationship with Jesus had nothing to do with it. I pray at night. I go to church. Can you see the similarities? We all have it. Satan isn't, this isn't anything new. So, for them, being a Jew is like having a free ticket to heaven. Just like for many, being a Catholic is a free ticket to heaven. Um, I don't know if I want to talk about this or not. I think I'll skip it to save some time. Um, basically, you just don't need God in a rabbinic system. Moses said, God, if you don't go down the mountain, if you don't go with me, then kill me now. Remember that? That is the opposite of what the Jews have today. The, the rabbinic Judaism, there is no need for God. The rabbis are God. There's no need for God to go with you if you're in the Catholic Church. And, and you know, you, I got the Pope. I can live my life the way I want. I really don't need, I mean, what's sin, really? Okay? And like I said, Christians have that same philosophy sometimes. Um... We, on the other hand, know that we are sinful. And we need to repent of our sins. Return to God. That's really what repentance is. It's turning away from sin and returning to God. But just like it was in Jesus' day, today, rabbinic Judaism is a political system more than it is a religious one. You don't need repentance. You just need votes. You just need people following you. It's mostly political. Um, you don't need to repent. You need to convert. They just want you to convert. A Jew today, because of this system, sees that man is pretty good, generally good. All right? They just need a good education. And that good education will bring out the good in them. You just need to be taught but the good is there. We, on the other hand, see that we are, no, yeah, there is nothing good that lives in me, as Paul said. Apart from Christ, we are nothing. They believe that by their own power, their own works can overcome any wicked nature that may be there by learning by doing these things. We believe that we can do nothing on our own. It is, we can do all things through Christ, but nothing good lives in me. So, this is going to sound silly, but this is what they teach. When a baby is born, it is born good. 
It has all the knowledge of good in it. And when that baby is born, it knows it. It has all of that knowledge. And then they slap the baby. And you literally slap the good out of it. You slap all of the memories and all of the knowledge out of it. And so from a baby on, you have to learn and educate yourself to relearn all the good that you knew before you were born. Why wouldn't they just stop slapping the babies? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, Amidah says you have to slap the babies. Yeah. Logic and reason, I thought. That is literally recorded in the Babylonian Talmud tractate. That you slap a baby, you slap the memories and everything out of them. I know, but this is what it says in the Babylonian Talmud. Yes, there's a medical reason for that. He knows that, yeah. Anyway. Um, we also have in the 1500s, we'll get to that later, but just to mention it now, the Kabbalah. Uh, basically, the Kabbalah is going to be more of a, an enlightened, New Age version, kind of sect. And... They teach, literally, teach reincarnation in there. Um, not just kind of. If you, if you sleep with a cow, you come back as a bat. If you sleep with a woman during her period, you're going to come back as a Gentile. You sleep, with a, you sleep with a married woman, you come back as a donkey. It literally says that. Okay, that's their teaching. That is reincarnation, folks. That is new age. And I am telling you that rabbinic Judaism is loaded with New Age, Greek, stars, all of these kind of pagan philosophies. Um, and the only crazy thing about that to me is this, is you might go, well, yeah, but that's just the Kabbalists that believe that. It may be the case, however, only, and this is from Jews that tell me this, only a secular Jew, meaning one who is in Jew culture but they don't practice anything, would find that silly. Even if you don't, aren't a Kabbalist, the rest of the, the Jews, the Orthodox Jews, would accept that as truth. That's what they tell me. So, um, again, repentance is really only for a secular Jew. Uh, uh, a regular Jew doesn't need to repent. You need to, a secular Jew needs to repent of not being a Jew, ultimately. Give you an idea of, like I said, that this system is Israel today. This system... Today, there's a, a rabbi for the Wailing Wall, okay? Right now, there is a rabbi in charge of the Wailing Wall. Their taxes in Israel pay for him. He gets $333,000 a year is the budget just for that rabbi, for just that Wailing Wall. And there are hundreds, if not thousands, of rabbis in Israel. They have a $3 billion a year budget for rabbinic indoctrination in Israel today. So when you go to Israel, you need to understand that's the system they are living in today. Does that help you understand how hard it is for you to be a Messianic Jew in Israel today? I don't know if you remember that video I showed you of Ron saying that you know, his family thinks he's crazy, that he, you know, he needs to take a pill or something, see a doctor. And he says, but they're the ones that need a doctor. They need Jesus. But you see, that is the view that's there. And I mean, I could go on and on, but um, it's, it's 
really unbelievable. So let's talk about this oral law quick. I kept telling you when I when you when a Jew says they study Talmud, or I'm sorry, actually when a Jew says they study Torah, which would be the first five books, right? For to you, their definition is no, we really study Talmud. And so for a Jew studying Torah, honestly, they don't know as much about Torah as they do Talmud. And when you say Torah, they don't mean what you and I think of as the written word. They think the oral word. They believe that at Mount Sinai, God gave Torah to Moses. But it didn't include just the written, but the oral as well. And so let's look at some scriptures that, you know, can we find anything that says that there was just an oral Torah? You will not find a single verse. Instead, you're going to see uh, quite the opposite. I'm not going to go through this outside to just show you. Here is the progression of the Talmud and how it basically was formed through oral Torah. You've got God gave it to Moses, Moses gave it to Joshua, who gave it to the elders, who gave it to the prophets, who gave it to the great assembly, which is Ezra and Nehemiah, who then gave it to these Zugots just before Christ was coming. Then the Tanaim uh, from 0 to 200 when the Mishnah was being developed. Then the Amorim then basically put together the Gemara. And then you get all these others that continue to solidify this thing here. That we call the Talmud. Yes, it is convenient, isn't it? And so we have all of these people here as well. I'm not going to go over it, but Enoch, the book of Enoch that we talk about here a little bit too, is not considered authoritative today by a Jew. It was more so at the time of Christ than it is today. Now, what's considered authoritative are these rabbis. Okay? And so that's the system that's there. Exodus 24 says, When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Okay? That was the, the covenant that God made with them. The marriage covenant, as Logan talked about last week, that's the I do. I take you. I will. Moses then wrote down almost everything. No. He wrote down everything. The Lord had said. Exodus 34, 27, the Lord said to Moses, write down these words. Okay? Um, there is no oral Torah. To a Jew, they now see the books of Moses not as a law book, like you would, but they see it as a story or a narrative that talks about laws. That's how they see Moses in rabbinic Judaism today. Their laws are more important than the laws of Moses. If you ask them today, is Moses a book of laws? They'll say no. It's a story that contains many laws. Okay? I really challenge you. You guys see some Jews walking down the streets. Go ask them these questions. Yeah. You're going to be shocked. Deuteronomy 30.10, if you obey the Lord your God and keep his commands and decrees that are written in this book of the law. Okay? The word is the final say, and you don't go outside of that. And that's where we as Christians get in trouble, is by going outside of the written word. 
Joshua 23, 6 through 7, be very strong, be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Second Kings, same type of thing. Okay, over and over. Nehemiah 8, verse 8. Some people say they read the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Okay, it isn't just an explanation or, you know, adding on oral law, but rather these are people that had come from Babylon and they were speaking Aramaic. It needed to be translated into Hebrew. So, basically, that may be what's being talked about here. But the problem is, is Jesus should be the focus. When we read God's word, you always have to be looking for Jesus. If you're reading the law of God, you're looking for Jesus in there. If you're not looking for Jesus, you're missing the point. Because what did Jesus say? These are the words. These are the very things that he says, you, you, you Jews. He says, you guys study the scriptures thinking that by them you have eternal life, but these are the scriptures that testify about me. Pretty much, yeah. It, it is very secular. And I think that this is one of the things that concerns me. This last week, going down to Illinois, I had two people that I had to address the flat earth about. I go and I speak the very first evening. I get a question about the flat earth. I go to the next place. I get a question about the flat earth. I go to the next place. I get another question about a flat earth. I get another question about some other weird things. I don't know what's going on in our world right now. But there's some sort of thing that is a distraction, a lot of distraction that is keeping us from the word of God. That's getting us off focus, off of Jesus. I'm not saying that there may not be some truth in some of these crazy ideas that are out there. Not the flat earth. I'm telling you, it's not flat. Okay? Have you seen it with your own eyes? I've seen experiments. I have seen everything. But what's happening is Satan is doing something, and I don't know what it is, outside of a distraction. He is. And I think truth is important. Truth matters. And somehow he is getting in there, and he is trying to to get philosophical and logical, logical arguments to divide, to divide us. And he does that when we get our eyes off of him. Yep. The same happens with the law of God. You get your eyes off of Jesus in that law. Division. As I said, a Jew studies to study. We're to study to do. We don't study to learn. I feel like that there is this tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil that is before us. Notice knowledge of good and evil. And then there's the tree of life. A Jew has gotten to the point of Study for the sake of learning. Let's eat of the tree of the knowledge of both good and evil. 
I feel in the church that that's what's happened is we have become, like we just got to learn. And even you study the scriptures thinking by that, you're a Christian because you read your Bible every day. No, these are the scriptures that testify about me, Jesus says. And listening to all these things this week, it just got me thinking, and there's something in my spirit that's just reeling and saying, what is going on, church? We are, we're getting off track. I don't care. Maybe some of it is true in some cases, but I, we got to be careful. I think we need to reel ourselves back because it's a distraction. Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame so that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I think now more than ever, as Romans also tells us, that as you see the day drawing near, all the more to put on Christ Jesus, all the more as you see the day drawing near. That we need to make sure that we are not getting caught up in the distractions of this world and that we are looking for Jesus in everything that we are studying because we don't study to learn. We study to do. What he told them is that you learn of me and you're to go out and you are to evangelize. You are to be spreading the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. That's what your learning is all about. Not to be right in some area, but to be right on the gospel. And I think that we have failed to exercise that calling. If you want to kind of hear more of this, I really recommend Pod for Israel. These guys are doing a great work in Israel, witnessing to Jews and, and living in this world that I'm telling you about. And these, I've kind of summed up a little bit in this here tonight. And you will hear uh, this Dr. Golan Broshi or Broshi, that he will talk about these things. And this is what he, they're living in in Israel today. And maybe we aren't living in that society, but I'm telling you we can see some of those same lies and those same deceptions even in the churches today. And it all is when we don't take the written word as the authority for our life and when we learn to learn, not learn to do, to have a relationship with Jesus. That's what we need. So I realize that this is not necessarily a Bible study, but I think that these are good tools that you need to be thinking about as we study the scriptures. So after this, uh, I'm gone next week, the week after that. Um, I'm going to talk, we're going to see how the messianics then. We've looked at the negative, we've seen how the bad went. We're going to switch gears and get to see how God was being faithful to the messianic group, the Nazarenes at that time. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Um, God, it is a gift to have it. It is such a gift to know that we can find truth in your word. That it's not within us, 
that that truth is not in man. It's not in a log logical argument, but it is in faith and faith in you alone. Teach us your word, Lord. Teach us your ways so that we may know you, that we may walk in your ways, and that we may tell the world about the good news of Jesus Christ. That atonement has been made once for all on that cross by the blood of Jesus. And so, protect us this week. Let us meditate upon these words today and to just reflect on our own lives and maybe what we need to do more of or what we need to stop doing or whatever it might be. But may you go with us to, to teach truth, the truth of Jesus to people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.